At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 555th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who asks, can there be too much organic matter in our garden soil? We're talking with Michael Nelson about healthy urban soil. Michael grew up in a military family and has been stationed around the world. The longest he lived anywhere was six years in Colorado and six years in Oregon. His paternal grandparents were commodity farmers in Wyoming who hoped their kids would be too smart to become farmers. Of their four children and nine grandchildren, Michael is the only one in agriculture. Michael is an instructor of urban agriculture at Oregon State University and is pursuing research into controlled environment agriculture. He has clusters of houseplants from different biomes on his windowsills, worms in the garage, and he's experimenting with insect protein production. It seems if there's a living system to be emulated, Michael is interested. Welcome to the show today, Michael. Are you ready to rock garden soil? Oh yeah, let's do it. Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. I think the like most standout thing about that that turned me down this path of agriculture was while I was living in Colorado, my roommate and I built a greenhouse in our backyard, about 400 square feet. And there was just this one or a span of summer days that I was able to go out with a bowl and just pick a salad straight into that bowl. Oh, nice. Right? Like, that was so inspiring. That was the close, that was the, like, okay, I I need to close this gap. I work to get money to eat. How how can I tighten that up and just make it to where what I'm doing is feeding me? And that kind of set me off, uh, made me look towards uh, the Pacific Northwest to kind of get into a little bit more official agriculture training, I guess. I kind of had it in my mind that that's where I needed to go. And it worked out. I ended up working on a handful of small organic urban farm, well, urban to peri-urban farms between uh, Beaverton and Philomath. And I know so much more than I did then. And I'm really excited to kind of get back to that greenhouse in the backyard and start applying everything that, that I've uh, gained in the meantime. Nice. So before we actually get started with talking about garden soil, when I first found out about you, I saw an article talking about too much organic matter in garden soil. And my first question was, what? And so I looked you up and and I found a blog post on Oregon State University's website that started with, my name is Michael Nelson, a world citizen intent on feeding the globe. And I have to say, I got chills. In fact, I just got chills right now when I said that. Tell me about what that's about for you. Ah. Uh... I hope it's uh, not uh, being made up to be bigger than it is, but I do I do find it kind of the most succinct way that I can 
phrase my inspiration, be it to others or to myself. Like that's what I'm trying to do. So first half world citizen, like I'm here, we're human, we're all in this, trying to figure it out and feeding the globe. Like I'm not looking to, I'm not specifically looking to produce all the food on everyone's plates, but I think there are some important things that can change that can really increase the agency that people have to access and control their own food supply. You're right. Like what's been going on this year? Yeah. I mean, you know, kind of we're getting into that, talking about the gardens. We, we see this an uptick here kind of every time there's un- economic uncertainty, we see an associated uptick in home gardening or Huge. urban agriculture or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I love your vision, intent on feeding the globe. In 1991, I created myself to be the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. And I don't intend to do it all myself. I just am kind of one of the catalysts, and so are you, and I love that about you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. You gotta, you've got to look for a way to over-leverage yourself, like without being spread too thin, you know? Like, right. You can only do so much. There's just the one of you as, you, as you were saying before we started recording. There's just you. You can only do so much, and so you got to figure out ways to really tilt things towards the way that you want them to go. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's why the podcast and Urban Farm, you, for me, and for you, your, you know, your studies and your teaching. And I used to teach sustainable ag at Arizona State University. And so everything that we can do to get people awake and aware, I think is, for me, is one of the most important things I can do. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I'm, I'm kind of looking at it now as like, What's a way that I can speed people along? How can I take someone who's where I was about seven-ish years ago, you know, whether they're picking the salad into their bowl or not, they're otherwise inspired. They want to do something, but the problem's always like, what? What do I do? And how do I do it? And and all that. And like, so if I can if I can take someone along and get them up to where I am or beyond as fast as possible, that would be, I think, uh, a pretty effective way to 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 start changing the globe and start, yeah. start feeding some more people. Well, and I'm sure you've done that. How does it feel? So, yes, I have, at the time of this recording, I've recently finished teaching my first class, and it was pretty exciting. It was, it was. there's definitely some validation, just like, hey, I guess there's stuff that I know that people could benefit from knowing as well. So yes! That's nice. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and then, and then there's just like, just in general, just kind of like, you're getting some of their questions and you're guiding them along. And then you see at the end that not, not with everybody, but with, with some of them, like that they, they feel like they can do something now like that. We've, we've gone through this plan. They're not alone. Questions can be answered. And so we, we start with an idea. What would you do if you were to plant in your urban area? And then we finish with, here's your plan. You just go do it. I can't do that for you. I can do all this. I can, I can, you know, take you along a little bit for, for all the planning, but uh, you got to get out there and do it. And so I'm just trying to get people to where they can go and do it. One of the coolest things for me in teaching at Arizona State University, taught there for five or six years, was to look back on my time there, the seeds that we planted in my classes, and to see some of the content and activities that people have been up to and doing since then. And, you know, there's a, a guy here in town who started a whole food composting company out of taking my classes. So it's, you know, that's yeah. always really cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
again, a, a little bit self-aggrandizing, but it does, it feels good. And I, and mm-hmm. I do, I do look forward to that time. Like I said, it's, it's a new class. I've got plans for more, you know, more things are in the works, but for me, it's just started. And I optimistically anticipate uh, a future where at least somebody is able to, you know, has done something because of uh, what happened in our class. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you, you have a real uh, limb up because your office mate is Andrew Millison, who has been doing this for decades. Both you, you know him because he's your office mate. I know him because he used to live here in Arizona and we used to, you know, affiliate. He's been on the podcast. So there's, there's a really deep bucket of, of where you can learn from as well. Yeah, especially right now. I mean, I was already teaching online before anything uh, happened this year. And especially now, things are moving even harder online. And Andrew's got uh, an extensive amount of experience there, especially being able to take this, what was traditionally thought of as like something so physical, like how can I even, you can barely even teach it in a classroom. I need to take them outside and we need to go do something with plants. Like how do you, how do you move something so physically rooted like that and get it into the digital environment where you can reach anybody everywhere yeah. um and yeah so I, I agree it's it's i'm really glad to have his work i'm glad to be able to just talk to him whatever like it's it's cool that's you know he's one of the people in my life where like people know his name and he's someone i can just right send a message to <laughs> right exactly boy i hear you on that well cool congratulations i love the work you're doing thank you yeah Cool. So let's go to our thesis question that got me interested in calling you in the first place. And that is, there can be too much organic matter in garden soil? That blows me away. How can that be? Well, how? I mean, there can be too much of anything, right? Like, if, All right, I'll buy that. I think <laughs> it, um, moderation is kind of the name of the game. Uh, we're seeing that like in the emerging the emerging idea in soil science right now is we're more talking about soil health. And so depending on who you say, they might use the term like a balanced soil or, or something to that effect. And so it's, it's kind of like if you've heard of Liebig's or Liebig's leaky barrel, where it's made, you know, a barrel's made of a bunch of slats. It can only hold as much water as the shortest slat. And so you're trying to balance this barrel or the soil with what your plant needs. And so if you have too much of something, it doesn't really help when you have too little of something else. And so... Well, I guess here yeah. here in the desert soil, we have less than one percent organic matter. Mm-hmm. So our fix here has always been to add lots and lots and lots of compost, add lots of woody mulch on the top, really build out the soil so it's more like a forest soil mm-hmm. and less less like a uh, you know a compacted cliche dirt. Yes. So I, I will definitely agree that we, we have to acknowledge, you know, soils are diverse. And so in this case, my study took place in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, you know, not to disparage the farmers here or anything, but easy street. I mean, stuff just grows here. Yeah. It's, be- it's, it's part of why I'm here, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it just, it, it works. And down where you are, not even close to the same kind of soil. And so it's probably going to take longer to go too far and to to over enrich your soil than it would for here but i do think there's something that is applicable to anyone regardless of what their native soil is when we're seeing this popularity of building raised beds a lot of those i mean i don't i don't have the research to back this up so this is conjecture here but my opinion is that a lot of them are filled with more or less the same stuff it's a lot of bagged imported media and so the further you go 
to bring something in, the more homogenized it becomes, right? Like the more industrialized it is, the more of a product it becomes. And so I think a lot of raised beds are going to look very similar to other raised beds because they're being created in the same manner. Whereas the soils underneath, they got created under different conditions. Those raised beds are being created by people using bagged product. Got it. And so imported media, imported soils, I've always been a fan of buying local soils. And it was my conjecture, is that the right word? was my idea that that soil, given that it was made locally, has local microbes, local microorganisms, local life that is going to do better here. I'm no soil microbiologist. I don't know. I mean... But it kind of makes sense, right? Right? Maybe. But I guess I'm sure, you know, as everything else, it's going to depend, right? It's going to depend on the processing. Was it hot composted? Mm. In which case, you know, it's that's a that's a pretty strong filtering effect. That's going to kill off anything that can't take the heat. And then it's going to be recolonized by whatever is around or in it. And so you know, post-hot composting is probably going to be pretty similar regardless of what you started with. I don't know. It's getting kind of hazy. <laughs> it's all right. So let's let's jump into your study. You actually did a study. Tell me about it. Summer of 2017, I went to 29 different garden sites run by master gardeners, certified master gardeners in the state of Oregon between Portland and Corvallis. So it was important that they were the certified master gardeners so that we have a standard starting point, right? Like they're all exposed to the same amount of training. They all have to have the same amount of hours of education per year of continuing credits. And they're all trained ostensibly with the latest knowledge from Oregon State uh, Extension. Ultimately, I, I test their garden soils. And despite this training and this commonality of research, they're all just very over-enriched. This is basically the short of what I find there. It's a lot of everything. And when you say over-enriched, talk to me about, well, actually, let's step back. If I was going to say, tell me what healthy soil is, what would you say? Healthy soil performs the functions of the land manager's desire. Oh, so it depends what healthy soil is. It's in the eye of the beholder, right? It's uh, yeah. It's not good or bad until we want it to do something or not. Just kind of like a weed is just a plant out of place, you know? The dandelion's fine until you don't want it in the crack in your driveway or, <laughs> right. or, or you know, pockmarking your lawn or whatever. So, you know, serpentine soils, like, they basically don't grow plants except for a couple of specialists. They're fairly toxic because of a lot of heavy metals. It's okay. I mean, it's not a healthy soil for a garden, but it's a healthy soil for the natural park that it resides within. All right. Well, let me reframe my question then, Mr. Researcher. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If I had a garden bed that I wanted to grow vegetables in, what might healthy soil look like underneath that? So you would probably, you know, want like a loamy texture, I don't know, around 5% organic matter and sufficient levels of the rest of the fertilizers like NPK or your micronutrients. It would depend on what your crop, but for most vegetable gardens, you're looking slightly acidic, you know, relatively elevated nitrogen and phosphorus and even sometimes, you know, potassium levels uh, compared to native soils. Just in general, you do want a richer soil than you probably will find uh, in the native environment for for your garden. So when you say 5% organic matter, here in the desert we have less than 1%. What else is there that goes into this soil? 
when we're talking soil texture, like if you want a loamy soil that's composed of it's, it's just a physical property, a physical characteristic. So that would be sand, silt, and clay. They're they're really just size classifications for particles. Anything less than two millimeters in diameter is a soil particle. Doesn't matter if it's two millimeter piece of glass or a two millimeter piece of basalt. You know, it, do, it doesn't matter. Uh, as soon as it gets that small, it's sand or 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 something else. And so that's usually that's that's most of what everything is. You know, if you've got five percent organic matter, then it's ninety five percent mineral element. If you've got you know one percent organic matter then it's 99% mineral element. So that, which, min- oh, that mineral is clay, sand. And silt, and yeah. Silt. Just just really, really weathered rock. Really, really, really tiny, fine bits of the planet. Cool. All right. Good. So in doing your investigation, what, what were your findings? Over-enriched, and we can talk about what that might mean. Sure. But in general, what we're seeing is there's published guidelines for how much fertility you generally need for, especially when you're talking vegetable garden, you know, like it's a fairly standardized list of like, uh, you can look into corn needs, you know, X, B, X to Y, whereas beets need between A and B, or, or it varies a bit. But in general, you can find recommendations for how much nitrogen parts per million and phosphorus in parts per million and, and for, for all those uh, central elements needed for plant growth. And really, what I was just finding was that hardly any of them, hardly any of the sites I investigated were even within that range. Basically, everyone was uh, at the top end or beyond. Like one example I could show is, uh, again, with the organic matter, you typically see about three to six percent as the goal that most farmers kind of manage towards. Mm-hmm. My sites average 13 percent. That's hold so on, my average. On. Average. Twi- my average was twice the upper wow. range, upper end of the recommended range. And I had one site which was a full 33%. One third of the soil was organic matter. How it happened is this person told me they composed the, they just built this raised bed shortly before I arrived to test it. It was about three ish feet deep and it was filled with, quote, just compost. So those plants burned. They did not live. Fresh pepper plants planted in um, before my research was complete that summer, before my data gathering was complete, those plants had died. And so that's that's one of those dangers of too much, right? That's it's it's not that often. Like a, a single instance of thirty three percent organic matter. No one no one else is that close, and most people won't be. But that's it's one of the things that can happen. Like your plants can be stunted or even killed from too much of certain kinds of elements. Now, I know that too much woody matter in soil robs the nitrogen from the plants and they'll suffer. Is that what you're talking about? No. So too much carbon in the soil really just ties up that nitrogen within the microbial community. Mm -hmm. And so it starves out the plants. Right. In this case, the burning, I mean, so much compost, there's a chance it wasn't finished composting and it like it burned due to temperature. Mm. Um, there's also a pretty strong chance that it burns chemically, um, just a lot of nitric acid leaching out of this very, very rich amendment. In an attempt not to get too much organic matter in a bed, let's say I have somebody with a four by eight foot raised bed and they want to fill it with something to start growing groceries. Where, okay. where would they start? If you can, I recommend just fill dirt for the most part, like kind of going back to how you'd said before, some kind of, you know, natively locally sourced dirt. Not necessarily that it may or may not be microbially better. It's just going to be cheap. Most of this, we just need to fill the space. As we were talking about with what's the rest of the soil, 
Most of it's mineral content. Most of it is small, tiny little pieces of rock. Most of it is still, relatively speaking, inert. And it's not actually doing it's, – it's aiding, it's aiding physical processes. It's rooting your plant. It's just, you know, helping it not be blown away by the wind. And it's allowing for water to stay in the root zone and to slowly drain and, and to keep a balance between oxygen and, and water in the soil pores. But, but ultimately, your plants aren't, like, eating the soil, you know? Sorry, but you wanted to know what to put into it. So I would just say put in whatever the cheapest kind of dirt that you can find that is clean. Be careful that it's not from some contaminated site or it has a bunch of heavy metals or something like that. But if you can get some clean or, or some dirt that you kind of trust that someone just kind of dug out from somewhere else, like if they're excavating a ba- basement and you feel like maybe it's safe, I do recommend a heavy metal test. But uh, yes, just some fill dirt would I think be most of what you need. And then soil test it afterwards, see what you actually need to supply to it. Wow. And then supply those nutrients, right? Yeah. Like save your time and your money and your effort and the environment and just give it what it needs. Again, back to that barrel. If it's deficient in nitrogen, probably, then you need to give it some nitrogen. But if it's sufficient in phosphorus, then why add the phosphorus? That's, you know, an expense that you need not endure. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, so this is going to uh, shift a lot of the people's thinking that I've been telling for years to add lots of organic matter in your raised bed garden. In fact, one of the things that I've coached people do, and we've had luck with this down here in Arizona, is fill up a raised bed garden, or halfway fill a raised bed garden with woody mulch, and then put, mm-hmm. and then put your soil on top of it, and you get the fungal growth going on underneath. Any thoughts on that? Are you putting soil on top, or are you putting compost on top? So to distinguish, compost is something that has been fully composted. I don't recommend that people use straight compost. A lot of the products that we use here are uh, for our garden beds are a mixture of compost, perlite, cocoa peat. Yeah, uh, bag media. Bag okay. bag so, media. So, yeah. Honestly, like sounding soilless, really, unless they mix in some sand for some cheap weight, uh, which they do. <laughs> we can we can go off that tangent too. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> When, urban urban soils are basically sand, like because it's so cheap and yep. nobody holds them accountable for it. Exactly. That's what I tell people. I say you have plenty of dirt where you're at. Don't buy dirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think especially so again in, in your instance down there with a very depleted, I guess we could say, or a very uh, low organic matter content soil. You do. You really can benefit from this kind of carbon injection, like mm-hmm. a, a, a large amount of organic matter itself. I mean, because really, if we're if we're saying organic matter, it's just anything with carbon, right? Right. So, but we're as you just pointed out a second ago, there's better definitions still. Like we've got actual compost versus this soilless media. I don't know. They're uh, they're different things, and that's part of what kind of makes it so complicated. Um, right. <laughs> I think, I mean, if you're saying you're meeting success, and I think it sounds like a really good answer for your area. You're you're getting that giant layer of carbon that's going to slowly work in. You have a soilless media layer above, or sorry, a soilless layer above, Mm -hmm. and that soilless layer, you know, you're basically kind of making a large potted environment, if you will. Yeah. And by the time the soilless media compacts. And the wood chips have been, you know, incorporated in the soil below. You finally have like some rich native soil down below, right. and your 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 synthetic kind of 
pseudo potted environment is gone and you're actually back to growing in soil just you know remediated soil rather than what's right outside of the edge of your bed which is just that dusty sand you know less than one percent anything yeah stuff yeah wow cool all right well thank you for all of that yeah no problem <laughs> I, in your bio, I, I, I want to touch on one thing real quick. In your bio, you talked about insect protein production. Uh-huh. Let's just talk about that for a couple of minutes because I've, uh, I've interviewed multiple people, include, including Jeffrey Tomberlin, about insects and the protein involved. And it's a fascination of mine that I, would, I wish I had more life in me because I'd go start a black soldier fly processing plant to process food wastes. So tell me, give me two minutes worth on that. Okay. Two minutes on insect protein production. First, it's important. We need protein. Uh, There's more people than ever. They are getting richer despite this vast economic disparity. People are on average getting a little bit richer. Standards of living are increasing. We want more meat as a species. We're trying to eat more meat. Really, we're just ultimately needing more protein simply because we have more people. Right. That protein right now is coming from two sources, mostly. Fish meal, which is killing the ocean, and soy meal, which is killing the land. Insect meal offers this almost unbelievable solution to turn food waste back into high quality protein and fat to then be fed to our current livestock systems or if people ever get over themselves we could eat the bugs directly (laughs) i've tried to wrap my head around that one and haven't quite gotten there yet so this fish protein and soy protein it's used for animal feed yes uh, it's just, just like you and i need protein to build our bodies, these livestock that we're growing to, well, whatever, livestock and just anything alive needs protein. Plants need protein. Proteins are the building blocks of, of our life, right? Which are proteins themselves, they are made of amino acids, which is ultimately made of, in some part, nitrogen, but in large part, phosphorus. And so we're getting back to another way where we could save this planet. One day or another, we are going to see the end of cheap phosphorus. We keep finding bigger phosphorus deposits around the globe, and then we keep heralding the end, and then we find a bigger deposit. That That's great. You know, like cheap phosphorus, that's great. It's making food cheap. That will end. Probably not in my lifetime, but it's going to end, and eventually we're going to need to reclaim phosphorus from the ocean, and that's going to be expensive. So... These bugs offer a chance to to kind of close this cycle and stop flushing our waste into the ocean where we're eventually going to have to recover it to grow food again and instead close that cycle and and get that phosphorus, get the protein, get the fats. I mean, get really everything. I mean, all of it's important, but we're just closing the cycle. We eat the food. We create food waste. We create waste itself. All of this can be eaten by these bugs. They can themselves be eaten by whatever we eat. And what kind of bugs are you talking about? I favor black soldier flies. There are others. A lot of people have looked into mealworms. I mean, there's a handful of uh, crickets have kind of hit the market. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, there's, I, I like black soldier fly larvae. I think they are the best for a wide scale or, or um, industrial scale application, which is what we need. This is not, we don't need, not, not to say anybody shouldn't have a little black soldier fly bin in their yard, but that's not what we need. We need giant processing centers to handle the waste produced by what are going to be mega cities in the very near future. 
So I think these black soldier fly larvae, or the larvae are the processing part of the life cycle, but the black soldier fly is the whole species. If you want to know more information about black soldier fly processing plants, I did interview Jeffrey Tomberlin on the Urban Farm Podcast, episode 313. Go listen to that episode. It was amazing. So what other kind of bugs are we talking about? So, yeah, I mean, I think mealworms and crickets are kind of the biggest ones. Other, mm-hmm. Some people are exploring some others. Um, I have one uh, for you. Yeah, what? 35 years ago in the 70s, I discovered something. They're commonly known as fairy shrimp. Anastraca is their scientific name, and A-N-O-S-T-R-A-C-A. They're uh, the oh, sea monkeys. Remember the sea monkeys? Brine shrimp? Oh, oh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. So I actually played, in the 70s, I played with raising some of them. The nice thing about fairy shrimp, uh, brine shrimp are, you know, probably a quarter inch long, maybe a half a centimeter. And mm-hmm. uh, the fairy shrimp or anastraca, they can get up to be an inch and a half long. And they're, uh, they grow in temporal pools uh, in the desert here. It's They're really fascinating. Yeah, I, just, I pulled up their wiki page, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think going smaller is the answer. I mean, personally, I favor black soldier flies for a number of reasons over these other species, but I think going small is the answer. Insects are going to be one thing, but really insects are just going to be a stepping stone to the next where we're just harnessing bacteria to produce the nutrients we need. Like we already do it a little bit for things like insulin. We can do it way more than that. Just again, if people, if people uh, can get there themselves. (laughs) <laughs> right. Wrap their head around it. Well, and you know, when, when, when you have a powder that looks like flour, whether it's bug powder or flour from, you know, wheat, it's kind of all looks the same, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, the president for beyond meat talks about people don't eat what they don't, they don't eat burgers because it comes from an animal. They eat it despite the fact that it comes from an animal. What oh, yeah. really We just want good tasting food. You make it taste good, people will eat it. And so I'm I'm excited. The legislation is still kind of coming along, but we're we're really starting to see an opening up in this marketplace to where it it might start hitting um more products and start hopefully replacing some of these other uses that we have, like fish meal. Wow. Well, this has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for all your great data. Yeah, it's uh, been fun. I hope uh, it's been helpful. Yeah. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Oh, okay. So now the the heavier stuff, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Life. Right? I think I've kind of had a real failure to appreciate what I've got until it's gone, right? Just like in that song. Always kind of trying to change and move on to something and get and keep things going i guess it's it's been a problem where like when i thought of losing something I, it was too easy to kind of focus on the fact that well change is coming circumstances are going to be different i'm okay with change i'm okay with different but i was overlooking the loss for what it was for what it used to be and so i think just kind of slowing down and seeing what you've got and and like critically examining what it is to miss that thing rather than to simply have something else in its place. Wow, cool. And your biggest success? I think finding this field. Oh, yes. Really, like, potentially I can exercise a holistic life in this field. My work feels meaningful, even if it's not always pleasurable. I I like 
doing this stuff. I like talking about it. I like researching it. I mean, it's on one hand, you need a good life, uh, work-life balance, right? But on the other hand, without letting it consume me, it is it is many aspects of my life, and and it's not a bad thing. Well, and I love what you said: meaningful, if not always pleasurable. That's I I run along an edge with that because what I do consumes my life. It is my yeah. entire life, twenty four seven, every day. And it's always been that way for me since the 1970s. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes we have to stand back and, and reevaluate. But for me, sometimes it's a blessing to have known for this long that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And sometimes it's a curse. Yeah, no escaping it. Right. But, uh, yeah. but you're building something big. It's a little bit self-fulfilling kind of in light of this biggest success. When you f- to, to be lucky enough to have found a groove that fits so well uh how can i not run down it like how just it's more like you know don't go break neck you you need to keep some breaks like try and maintain some awareness this is amazing but but be controlled why why i'm doing it i i don't know i nothing else seems really worth it (laughs) i love that Love that. I and I so I you know, I kinda had a sense when we before we started talking that, that we were gonna correlate a lot in our lives and and you're right, it is so worth it. It's like this is what we're supposed to be doing, right? Yeah, like you you uh you keep self examining and, and cutting away and there's not a lot left beyond keep yourself and those around you fed, right? Yeah. And and, and just I mean really the only thing to change by that point is to slowly work on increasing who you're considering when you think about those who are around you. Now, I'm really excited about this next question. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? This is the one that took the most time. When you sent me these questions, the other ones were like, oh, okay, yeah, talk about these things, sure. And the book was like, how do you give someone one book? Because as soon as you start talking about a book, you get on to other books. And, right. But I think, I feel like, Especially with the topic of your podcast, you got plenty of, of farming kind of, of investigations. Like if I were to recommend some, like the Lean Farm, everyone's already read it, or at least they should. So why recommend that one? It was a great book, by the way. And I yes, interviewed him. It, yes, yes. For me, I ended on one by Murray Bookchin. It's titled Social Anarchism or Lifestyle Anarchism, An Unbridgeable Chasm. I read it in a point in my life where... You know, it turned out I really needed it. It was a refined, like this vague opinion of dissent that I had into one that really began to appreciate this mutual condition we share as humans. It changed my idea of what kind of future I was trying to build. I think this might really be relevant for some of your listeners out there because it it shifted me from dreaming of like this self-sufficient, unplugged, off-grid homestead where I lived a small, contented life within a perfected bubble and now I'm dreaming of these social connections because yeah. if I were to be this change that I want to see in the world, I don't want to see a world of hermits in their cabins. Right. I had, to, I had to pick up this book again when I finally settled on it. And I, I pulled out this quote that Bookchin itself uses, individuality is impaired when each person decides to fend for themselves. The absolutely isolated individual has always been an illusion. The fully developed individual is the consummation of a fully developed society. So that book, it's yeah. short, and if you uh, can really read it, it, it might change your life. Wow. Name and author again? 
That was Murray Bookchin. Oh, and the title was Social Anarchism or Lifestyle Anarchism and Unbridgeable Chasm. Wow, cool. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Uh, I always think of this magnet that I saw on a fridge while I was doing my soil analyses for this um, research. It, was, it said something to the extent of, the biggest lie I tell myself, I'll remember, I don't have to write it down. So my advice is write things down. It's It, it not only helps you to remember, because that in and of itself is valuable, especially as you continue to age, but p- writing it down pushes you forward. You have to You have to write these things down to get it out of your mind and into the world. Like, it saves your place. It, it, it ratchets your progress. A garden doesn't ever start by you just walking onto the lawn, or at least not a good garden. It starts, you know, like like any other real change. It starts with a plan. You've got to take hold of your future as best you can and then shape it how you want because you're not going to win all the time or even most of the time. But if you're passively receiving things, you're really limiting yourself. And so... Write things down, make a plan, find a way to make that plan happen. And if it doesn't work, then write that down so that you can adapt to it. Because you need you need to move forward. You've uh, you've got to you've got to do something. You've got to be active because you're not going to make it if you just are sitting here getting pushed around. There you go. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Michael. Thanks for having me. I really had fun. And how can our listeners get a hold of you? I think the easiest. I have a personal website, which is a little rough, but it's michaelnelson.com, M-Y-K-L-N-E-L-S-O-N.com. That's kind of where I put my links to everything. So whatever I actually have going on should be there. Like I've got some things in development right now that should be live by the time this podcast airs. Perfect. So um, michaelnelson.com, that'll be it. Otherwise, right now I work at Oregon State, so you can find my profile there in the horticulture department. You mentioned the Garden Ecology Lab blog that I sometimes publish too from Oregon State. And then my email is available at a couple different places. And I've got a, I don't know, I've got limited social media. Like I'm on LinkedIn and ResearchGate if they want to find me there. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Michael. That's M-Y-K-L. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.